traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B-19 The Prefect He'd known the city all his life, but never had this kind of view. Gazing out the palace window across the great harbor to the lighthouse of Pharos must have been a bit surreal. Mark Antony and Cleopatra had enjoyed this same view. It was an appropriate thought, since he was also considering something ambitious, something treasonous, and something that might end in his own destruction. And now that he held the letter in his hand, it was time to emulate the doomed couple. Very soon, he'd call up his troops and exhort them to rebel against the Roman Empire. But unlike his fellow Jews in Judea, at least his rebellion wasn't doomed from the start. As his name might suggest, Tiberius Julius Alexander was no ordinary Jew. He'd been born in Alexandria in the years after Octavian's death. His father'd been a leading customs official known as an oligarch, with both Roman citizenship and lucrative connections in the courts of Judea and Rome. Alexander's younger brother Marcus leveraged these connections into a brief marriage with the Herodian princess Berenice. Yes, the same Berenice who'd later marry, then divorce, King Polymon II of Pontus, and yes, the same Berenice who'd eventually become the lover of Vespasian's son Titus. The most esteemed member of Alexander's family was his uncle Philo, later known as Philo of Alexandria. Philo was a Stoic philosopher who attempted to harmonize Hellenistic thinking with Jewish tradition, and viewed the Jewish scriptures as allegorical. One of Philo's main contributions was reviving the Greek concept of the Logos, which he believed to be the divine animating principle of the universe. Early Christians would later propose that Jesus embodied the Logos, and Philo would have a greater legacy in Christianity than Judaism. Unlike his relatives, Alexander turned his back on Judaism and used his citizenship to pursue a career in Roman government. His father's close ties to the new emperor Claudius had allowed Alexander to obtain equestrian status. His first official role was Epistrategos, or over-general, of Upper Egypt, which he assumed around 42 AD. 
Despite how it sounds, the position was mainly administrative and included overseeing navigation on the Red Sea and Indian Ocean. In 46 AD, Claudius promoted the 30-year-old Alexander to procurator of the Roman province of Judea. He'd assumed the post two years after the death of King Herod Agrippa I and seven years prior to the arrival of Marcus Antonius Felix and Drusilla of Mauritania. The main challenge at the time was the zealot revolt of James and Simon, the sons of Judas of Galilee, and it was under Alexander that both brothers were captured and crucified. Two years later, Alexander was replaced by Ventidius Cumanus. For the next 15 years, the record goes silent. When Alexander reappears in 63 AD, he's serving under Corbulo in the Armenian campaign. In fact, it was Alexander who discorded Tiridates to Corbulo's camp, where he'd laid down his crown before a statue of Nero. In 66 AD, Nero bestowed on Alexander what was likely his most gratifying promotion, to prefect of his home province of Egypt. And it's worth noting that having a Jew and native Egyptian rise to such a senior post was a very rare thing. Ever since its conquest by Octavian, Egypt had remained a critical Roman province, under the personal control of the sitting emperor. Of the roles to which an equestrian could aspire, only prefect of the Praetorian Guard might be considered a greater honor. It was a mark of Alexander's distinction and his family connections that King Herod Agrippa II had planned to visit Egypt to offer his congratulations. But of course, 66 AD was the year Judea finally exploded. When the violence had spilled over into the streets of Alexandria, the new prefect left little doubt where his sympathies lay. It was Alexander who'd unleashed two Roman legions on the Jewish quarter, massacring some 50,000 of his fellow Jews. It was this decisive response that had shamed the Syrian proconsul Cestius Gallus into taking aggressive action in Judea. In this sense, it had been Alexander who'd put the whole Roman-Jewish conflict into high gear. Among the prefect's war-related concerns were Jewish pirates, operating from Joppa on the Judean coast, who were disrupting the grain supply from Alexandria to Rome. But he needn't have worried. In a short break between campaigns, the Roman general Vespasian set up shop in Caesarea and had his troops eliminate the pirate menace. It was just one more in a string of victories for the presumptive conqueror of Judea. After crushing the northern strongholds of Jotapata, Gamla, and Gashala, Vespasian had allowed the refugees to limp south and swell the population of Jerusalem. Given the atmosphere of zealot infighting and messianic leaders jockeying for power, Vespasian didn't need a prophet to predict the likely outcome. With luck, in a few months, the population might be reduced to a handful of traumatized survivors. Vespasian's hands-off approach definitely had some merit. 
Moderates, who'd been prepared to surrender the city to Cestius Gallus, had found their hopes dashed in the aftermath of his retreat. Jerusalem had once again fallen under zealot control, exercised from the inner courtyard of the Jewish temple. But the control was neither monolithic nor particularly popular. Especially after zealot leaders arrested the most prominent men in the city, threw them into prison, and had their throats cut. To add insult to injury, the zealots then dressed up a random villager in the sacred temple robes and proclaimed him the new high priest. The zealots didn't realize how much resentment they were generating until they found themselves confronting a full-blown revolt. The uprising was led by the former high priest Ananus ben Ananus, the same man who'd had James the Just stoned to death. Inciting Jerusalem's moderates into a righteous fury, Ananus led them into a violent confrontation near the temple. First stones were thrown, then javelins, then both sides drew swords and the real slaughter began. The battle's ferocity was fueled by the knowledge that whichever side lost would receive no mercy. For once, the zealots were outmatched in zeal and forced to retreat to the inner courtyard of the temple, where Ananus set up guards to prevent their escape. While he'd nullified the zealots, Ananus still had to deal with other factions. The most prominent were powerful northern leaders, who'd arrived in Jerusalem with the bulk of their forces intact. While some had messianic worldviews aligned with the zealots, others were Jewish nationalists, just hated the Romans, or were hungry for power and plunder. Ananus tried to co-opt the militias by giving their leaders a share in governance. The most powerful warlord was a man named John of Gashala, and while John wasn't a zealot per se, he was happy to use them to further his ambitions. John reasoned that if he helped the zealots overthrow Ananus, he could leverage their gratitude into a position of authority. With this in mind, John approached zealot leaders and confirmed their worst fears. Ananus had sent for Vespasian, had offered to surrender the city, and was, even now, preparing to take the temple by storm. John also hinted to the zealots that their only chance for survival lay in seeking outside help. The zealot leadership managed to get word to the southern territory of Idumea. Their message basically repeated John's lies and begged for their help against the traitor Ananus. In response, the Idumeans dispatched an army of 20,000. When they arrived at Jerusalem, Ananus met them with closed gates and tried to explain the actual state of affairs, i.e. the zealots had to be reined in, but no one was surrendering Jerusalem. The Idumeans demanded entry to assess the situation themselves. Wary that, once admitted, they might be swayed by zealot deception, Ananus demanded they first lay down their arms. The Idumeans refused. That evening, under cover of a fierce thunderstorm, a few zealots used saws to cut the bars of a city gate. On their signal, the Idumeans stormed the city and freed the remaining zealots, 
Then the combined forces went on a rampage. Ananus and other moderate leaders were quickly found and killed. They were followed by anyone who'd expressed moderate views or sympathies. It was only after the blood haze had abated that the Idumeans finally learned the truth. A sympathetic zealot told them they'd been tricked, that essentially they'd been fighting for the wrong side. Demoralized by the deception and their role in the slaughter, the Idumeans gathered their forces and left the city, which was actually just fine with the zealots, since most of their enemies had already been destroyed. And John of Kashala? Oh, he came out just fine. In the wake of the massacre, he increased the size of his private militia until it stood on par with the zealots. An informal division of power ensued, with each party pursuing its own agenda. For zealot leaders such as Eliezer ben Simon, this meant expedited executions of any perceived moderates. For John, it meant living in Jerusalem as a quasi-monarch. And this was the state of affairs when word reached the city that Vespasian was once again on the move. With Galilee, rebel Galanitus, and Samaria pacified, Vespasian turned his attention toward Perea. His primary target was the old Seleucid stronghold of Gadara. When the city surrendered, Gadaran zealots fled to Jericho, where they were pursued by Vespasian's general Placidus. The ensuing slaughter was apparently so great that the Jordan and shallows of the Dead Sea were choked with Jewish corpses. In the spring of 68 AD, word reached the east of a sea change in Roman politics. A general named Vindex, stationed in Gaul, had openly revolted against Nero's taxation. Vindex had declared his allegiance to a man named Galba, the aged proconsul of Hispania Terraconensis, and hailed him as the new Roman emperor. Vindex's rebellion was quickly crushed by Virginius Rufus, the governor of Germania Superior, but then Rufus's own men proclaimed him emperor. Though Rufus refused the honor, it was clear that something had changed. In Rome, the increasingly paranoid Nero was shaken to learn that support for Galba was substantial and growing. The breaking point came when the Praetorian prefect Sabinus openly declared for Galba and invited the governor to claim the throne. At this piece of news, Nero pretty much lost it and decided to flee the capital. He was seriously considering making a run for Parthia, hoping to crash on the couch of his good friend Volagasis, but gave up on the idea when he couldn't even get past the Roman port of Ostia. Hiding out in a villa just outside Rome, Nero was brought word that the Senate had declared him an enemy of the state, and called for his immediate execution. In particular, he was to be dragged to the forum and publicly beaten to death. Now, this wasn't quite true. In fact, the Senate was still debating his fate. But Nero didn't know that, and in a rather fumbled and embarrassing scene, he ordered his private secretary to stab him to death. 
He was 30 years old and had ruled the empire for nearly half his life. And with his passing, everything was up for grabs. At the first word of Vindex's rebellion, Vespasian had accelerated his Judean campaign. Word of Nero's death reached him in Caesarea as he was preparing for the final assault on Jerusalem. Vespasian decided to pause, see who took power, and wait for their instructions. In October of 68 AD, Galba arrived in Rome and was hailed as emperor. On hearing the news, Vespasian dispatched his son Titus, along with King Herod Agrippa II, to meet with the new emperor. But en route to Rome, they learned that Galba had already been murdered, on his way to put down a revolt by Otho, the governor of Hispania Lusitania. And, at the same time, another revolt was underway in Germania. Wary of the growing anarchy, Titus decided to return to Judea, while Agrippa continued on to Rome. Oh, and speaking of anarchy, please welcome another player to the Judean stage. Simon Bar-Giora was a Jewish resistance leader who'd helped decimate the legions of Cestius Gallus. When, in the wake of Beth Horon, Judean authorities were passing out territories to govern, Simon was overlooked, possibly due to his low birth. In response, he assembled a large group of followers and started looting the households of the rich and powerful. Kind of like Robin Hood, but with more violence and less altruism. Simon soon linked up with the Sicarii at Masada, but found them too timid for his taste. He then set off across the hill country and changed from Robin Hood to Spartacus, proclaiming freedom for all slaves and attracting an even larger following. But the noble impressions didn't last for long. Once he'd grown strong enough, Simon used violence and intimidation to gain control over local villages. He even fortified some as his personal strongholds, or, as Josephus put it, as repositories for his treasures and receptacles for his prey. But this was just a warm-up. The real prize was Jerusalem. After an initial skirmish with zealot forces, Simon decided that Idumea was ripe for the picking, and led 20,000 of his followers against an Idumean army of 25,000. Though the battle's outcome was indecisive, Simon employed an Idumean traitor to secure a bloodless victory. At Simon's direction, the Idumean told his generals that Simon had huge forces in reserve, and they really had little choice but to surrender, which they did, and which is how Simon Bargiora became ruler of Idumea. A benevolent ruler? Well, no. In fact, despite or because of his easy victory, Simon viewed the territory with contempt and allowed his followers to slaughter, plunder, and destroy at will. It's largely for this reason that the devastated Idumea is rarely mentioned again in contemporary accounts. But again, this was all just a sideshow, and soon Simon's army was back at Jerusalem. Except this time the zealots had an ace in the hole. 
Like the villain at the end of every action thriller, the zealots had managed to capture Simon's wife. So, you know, drop the army or the lady gets it. Unfortunately, Simon wasn't partial to action thrillers and had no intention of playing by the rules. Instead, he got angry. Assyrian-style angry. Everyone near Jerusalem that Simon could lay his hands on was tortured, mutilated, or killed. And he let it be known that every single person in Jerusalem, young or old, rich or poor, guilty or innocent, was in for the exact same treatment unless his wife was returned to him immediately. And, well, his wife was returned to him immediately. Inside the city, the zealots had had just about enough of John of Gashala. John had apparently worn out his welcome by growing increasingly more dictatorial and erratic, including having his followers dress up like prostitutes, then kill anyone who flirted with them. Which, I don't know, Jerusalem was just getting weird. When open warfare erupted between the two factions, zealot leaders devised a way to get the upper hand. They decided to ask Simon Bargiora to enter the city, team up with them, and eliminate John of Gashala. Since this was a totally awesome plan, with no conceivable downside, zealot emissaries snuck out of Jerusalem and approached Simon with the offer. Still camped a stone's throw from the city walls, with an army of 15,000 men, Simon Bargiora listened to the proposal, rubbed his chin, gazed off into the middle distance, then solemnly offered the zealots his benevolent support. The zealots opened the city gates, Simon's forces entered Jerusalem, drove John's forces into the outer temple courtyard, and blocked off their escape. At the same time, he trapped zealot forces inside the inner courtyard. Apart from these two strongholds, everything else went to Simon. Jerusalem was the last major city still holding out against the Romans, and Simon Bargiora was now its undisputed master. Not to be outdone in craziness, Rome lost its third emperor in a single year, when Otho committed suicide in April of 69 AD. Vitellius, the governor of Germania Inferior, had been hailed as imperator over both German provinces. After defeating Otho near Cremona, Vitellius was marching on Rome to accept the Senate's acclamation as emperor. Stories reaching the east spoke of the rough and debaucherous manners of Vitellius and his troops, portraying his coming rule as a return to the excesses of Nero. To Roman legionaries stationed in Judea, there was a far more palatable option. Their devoted, honorable, and successful commander, Titus Flavius Vespasianus, Word of Vitellius's ascension had barely arrived before they were clamoring for their general to save the empire. Whatever his intentions, Vespasian publicly demurred, until, as Josephus relates, they came about him with drawn swords and threatened to kill him unless he'd live according to his dignity, 
and then Vespasian finally agreed to be their emperor. Soon afterward, the fateful letter arrived in Alexandria. Although, truth be told, it wasn't exactly the first correspondence between Vespasian and Tiberius Julius Alexander. In fact, Vespasian had opened up communication several months earlier through a number of intermediaries, including the prefect's former sister-in-law, the Herodian princess Berenice. After all, a would-be emperor could make good use of the two Roman legions stationed in Egypt, not to mention having an effective stranglehold on the grain supply to Rome. The moment of truth had finally come, and Alexander called up his legions. To be honest, they probably needed little in the way of encouragement. As Roman soldiers, they knew the value of a capable commander, just as they knew the importance of legionary strength. Vitellius was nothing but a lascivious pretender, with a tenuous hold on the capital and a few western provinces. The rest of the Roman world was still holding its breath, and waiting for a new Caesar to lead them to even greater glories. From the rostrum of Alexandria, the prefect led his troops in an oath of allegiance to Vespasian. 